This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to just take your minds away from this beautiful place for one moment to just begin by considering for a minute the combustible rock called coal, which has defined the energy era of really the last 700 years. And just to remember that you know, it was coal that allowed the British Empire to become what it did. It was coal that enabled Germany to, to rise to a world power to fight and wage two world wars. Coal was decisive to the outcome of the U.S. Civil War uh, here at home. It was the reason Japan invaded Manchuria at the start of World War II. It's been obviously the driver of our economy for so many years and, and now of India and China. But we are changing energy eras. And I want to talk a little bit today about what's, what's next. But just to begin, let's look at what's actually happened to coal in the United States. So four years ago, four companies provided the majority of coal in the United States. Peabody, Arch, Alpha, and Cloud Peak Energy. And in the four years since then, their, their cumulative market cap has fallen by 98%. These companies are worth 2% of what they were valued at in 2011. Okay, this is the steepest decline in value in the history of the energy industry. Okay, and it's a good thing, and it's going to give way to uh, what we're going to talk about next. But just bear that in mind. This doesn't get out there that much. This is where we are, okay? So I want to just a uh, brief introduction. I got into energy, actually. I worked for President Mandela in South Africa in 1997, which is two and a half years after the end of apartheid. One of the first things that the ANC government did when they came to power is they provided mail service to uh, the townships. I was working in a township in the Eastern Cape. They never had post offices, and these were all solar-powered uh, with, with battery banks, and it became a community gathering spot. And that's where actually I first got excited about the potential of, of solar and of, of distributed generation and looked into it and learned every time the demand for solar doubles globally, the costs go down by 20% and that uh, you know, we can really take solar from being the smallest source of electricity generation in the world to the largest source in our lifetimes. And that was a vision I got really excited about. Um, I went on to work in San Francisco we actually worked for Willie Brown. Some of you uh, may know him. Funny story about Willie Brown. When he was mayor, he kept his phone number listed in the white pages. Uh, this woman calls him at 3 in the morning to say that her streetlight was broken and she'd like it fixed, please. And he you know, takes down the information, gets it fixed. Next morning, he sets his alarm for 3 in the morning, calls her back and says it's fixed. So <laughs> he was a lot of fun to work with. So we had an energy crisis, 2001, rolling blackouts. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we actually, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. We did a $100 million solar bond initiative to put energy efficiency on public buildings, the convention center, the airport, city hall, and reservoirs, and um, so forth. So uh, for this talk, I just want to ground us in one fact today on where we are with federal subsidies. People often ask, I think, the wrong question about federal energy subsidies, which is, what is the subsidy this year? Wrong question. The right question is, what's the all-in subsidy since subsidies began? And when you really unpack that, there's basically three differences between subsidies for renewable energy and subsidies for fossil. So first of all, we've been subsidizing fossil for much longer. Uh, there is, fossil subsidies are much more numerous, and they typically um, don't expire. So the oil depletion allowance began in 1926, continues in perpetuity. We had the wind production tax credit, started in 1992, has been on and off. It's ended basically at the, at the uh, end of last year. The solar investment tax credit, started in 2006, ends at the end of next year. So, you know, something is wrong with this picture, and in many ways the success that we're having is actually in spite of and not because of federal
federal energy policies. And so it really makes what's happening at the state level that much more uh, important. Um, I want to just also touch on another movement I think we can draw some inspiration from, which is what's happened with marriage equality. This is um, the number of states where gay marriage is legalized. And if you look at this, it's actually happened over a dozen years. Okay, So you go back 12 years ago, gay marriage was legal nowhere. Public opinion was strongly against it. Uh, And now it's legal in all 50 states. And public opinion has tracked with that. So 60% of the country supports it. I actually think there's a lesson here for the climate movement because the way they won this battle was largely about reframing the issue. They made it about love. And the government has no place to get in between two people who love each other. And I think when we talk about climate, we actually have to make this about the love of our children, actually, and really lead with that message uh, and not have polar bears to really start there. So... All right, so super exciting thing in California. We're going to 50% renewables, all right? This just got signed uh, just a month ago. Big round of applause for the governor for getting there. Um, And, you know, this is an important milestone. This puts us, you know, basically on a path for fossil fuels to become the alternative energy. Renewables will become mainstream. And I want to give you guys a bit of a clean energy tour in California to show you how this is actually happening already. So we are leading the country, the world, actually, and, 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 and relative to other states as well, uh, with renewable deployment, Texas is second uh, because of wind. Um, you, there's a lot of fairy tales about what would happen. Our economy would crash. Unemployment would spike. There'd be rolling blackouts. None of that has come to pass. Uh, but here's what has come to pass. By the way, our, doing all this, our electricity bills uh, are 18% less than, than the national average. Um, and by the way, with efficiency as well, important piece of the puzzle. Uh, you guys know the story. We started doing efficiency standards in the mid-'70s. Our usage was tracking with the rest of the country. We got commercial, industrial, residential savings. We're using half the energy per capita uh, compared to the rest of the country. Um, and refrigerators, uh, as being an example of that, energy use refrigerators up until standards went into effect. All, all the industry resisted. Then the energy use plummeted after the standards. And at the same time, the price of the refrigerator went down and the size of the refrigerator went up, right? In an era where government is being demonized, it's important to remember these success stories. Smart policy can work. Same thing, by the way, with, uh, with televisions. We did the TV standards in 2009, cut the energy use in half for TVs, saving a billion dollars a year for ratepayers and for, uh, for plug-in chargers in 2012. All this stuff helps us need to build less power plants in the first place. Um, so with renewables, okay, Keep in mind, this, this is what's happened the last six years. We have more than doubled. We were at 12% renewables in California in 2008. In December, we hit 25%. Um, this is some of the um, projects where this is coming from. This is the largest thin film solar PV project in the world. This is uh, called Desert Sunlight, 550 megawatts. And e- even over the course of construction on this one project, there's all this innovation. So this site was graded, okay? And they figured out actually going forward how not to do that. That saves 15% of the project cost. At the southern end of the solar field, all those solar panels had frames. Halfway through the project, they figured out how to get rid of the frames. The efficiency of these panels at the southern end of the field was not high enough to justify being on a tracker. As the project was going forward, they actually got the efficiency up to that level. So the company going forward is doing only tracking. So all this innovation happening. Uh, This is the world's largest silicon PV project, the Solar Star project in Kern County. This is the world's largest solar thermal tower plant, the Ivanpah project. Raise your hand if you've seen this from the airport. And so uh, second brightest thing visible from the face of the earth after the sun when it's energized. Um, Three 550-foot towers surrounded by 173,000 heliostat mirrors. 
Um, this is the world's largest solar thermal trough power plant, the SEGS project. This is not new. This is 30 years old and still going strong, and a real testimony, I think, to the durability of renewables. This is the world's largest geothermal power plant up in Lake County, uh, the geysers, um, almost a gigawatt in size. Actually, this is quite severely damaged by the fires recently. Um, we have also the world's largest iron chromium flow battery uh, out in, in Turlock in Almond Country. Uh, the world's largest wind project in Kern County, the Alta Wind Energy Center. Um, and actually, you think Kern County, you think oil. Well, actually, the second largest taxpayer in Kern County today is this wind project. So really, every technology category of clean energy, we have the largest project in the world. One good thing is happening. You know, there is environmental impacts even for renewables, but there's great progress here. I wanted to share this example. This is a project called Vasco, which is about an hour south of uh, Sacramento. They had 432 of these small turbines. Um, very, very high RPM, like 45 RPM, and they were on this lattice structure. So birds were attracted to, to land there. Uh, they repowered the site, which means they took down all 432 of those turbines. They put in its place 34 of the new turbines, which much slower RPM, solid steel column. They cut the avian mortality by 70%, and they tripled the energy production. So we're finding ways to really reduce the environmental uh, footprint, even of, of uh, renewable technologies. We also have the largest biomass um, power plant in the country. That's how, by the way, they load biomass. They take a truck and they back it in and they tilt it up to get the biomass material into the power plant. On new home construction, uh, now 27% of the new homes in Southern California are being built with solar. And what you find, solar is sort of the gateway drug, but then these builders get into uh, building green communities and designing green communities. And there's technologies you wouldn't even have thought of. They have cap they, they're, you know, a system that actually capture the heat from your used shower water, and they use that to preheat your hot water tank to save 500 bucks a year. So great momentum we're seeing now in new construction as well. Uh, and with regard to solar, we passed an important milestone last year, which is we have more employees in the solar industry in California than people who work for the utilities, right? Huge, huge um, step forward. And companies like Solar City are hiring, you know, on the order of 800 people a month now. First uh, city in the U.S. to mandate solar on new construction uh, was, was uh, Lancaster, California, a very conservative city, Republican mayor who did this. You can't build a building in the city of Lancaster without a minimum one kW uh, solar roof. And by the way, when you do this, you also reduce the uh, likelihood of default. So energy efficient and solar homes um, are 32% less likely to uh, default because customers have more money um, in their pockets to, to pay for the uh, mortgage. So the largest manufacturing plant in the state of California today is electric car factory. Tesla employs over 12,000 people. I worked for five years directly across the street from this facility. They had 5,000 people in their old incarnation as NUMI, a joint venture Toyota and General Motors. And then uh, uh, Tesla came in, bought the site, and they employ over 12,000 people. They're on track to do a $35,000 car that goes 200 miles on a charge. We have about 150,000 electric vehicles and plug-in electrics in California today. We're also seeing electric buses. This is a company we funded as well called Proterra. Uh, they're in 13 cities now. This is being manufactured in the city of industry in California. This bus has a 100-mile range, recharges in 20 minutes. Um, and then with cost reduction, I, I, I like this example. Roger Bannister, you, you all remember, broke the four-minute mile in 1954. People said, you know, that was a human barrier, couldn't be done. But as soon as he did it, 46 days later, the next record got broken. And in June, we broke uh, four cents a kilowatt hour for, for solar. So that's kind of a, 
our, our ventures. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually was in the solar industry for my career before this. And, you know, in 2000, it was 50 cents a kilowatt hour. So the lowest project in the United States today is three and a half cents. We have a, a gigawatt of projects so under four cents. So it's, it's a very bright uh, future. Obviously, as the price comes down, the market uh, goes up. We have companies like Google and Apple and Facebook that have committed to do 100% renewable energy. And you look at what companies like Apple are doing, they're going way upstream. They're actually building huge solar and wind projects in northern China to power the Foxconn factory where, where um, uh, the iPhones are made and so forth. The latest solar customer, this is the solar roof on, on the White House, President Obama put on last Earth Day. One thing that's happening now is uh, the all-electric home. Uh, so this is a builder called City Ventures. Um, they're building homes with no gas appliances. So typically in your house today, you have four appliances that use gas, your furnace, your hot water heater, your, um, uh, your stove, and what, what else? I your dryer, thank you. And so as you can imagine, so the electric alternatives for all four of those are excellent. As you can imagine, the main holdup is the stove, right? Everybody's used to cooking with the gas. I have a nice gas range, I'm used to that. They now have these incredible electric induction ovens and what they do to sell these homes, they, they bring in a four-star chef who cooks an amazing meal on this electric induction oven. And it works. And they actually have, um, they're saving $4,500 per home, which is the cost to bring the gas service down the street and, and pipe inside your house. With the military in California, great momentum as well. Um, we have 30 military bases, and you know, the Navy is actually doing an amazing job. They have a goal to get to 50% renewables by 2020. The Marine Corps has a goal to get to zero fossil fuel uses on their bases by 2025. They'll still use fuels for the missions. But this is happening. They're actually uh, making great progress and deserve a lot of credit. We're building high-speed rail in California, okay? And it was gonna be 100% powered by renewables, and every single station on the high-speed rail network will be a zero-net energy uh, facility. That commitment has been made. With the new economy, I, I take a, you know, Uber as an example. So Uber is a $50 billion company. General Motors is a $50 billion company, right? Uber didn't exist, you know, six years ago, right? So this is an amazing thing, similar with Airbnb. Um, you know, and I think this will happen. It, it's happening here, obviously, in spite of strong incumbents, and that's very similar to, to uh, what's happening in the energy field. But just to keep in mind, you know, how quickly change can happen. I, and I mentioned General Motors, and let's just look for a second. I mean, it took General Motors basically um, a century to get to their current valuation of $50 billion. So Google, or sorry, Tesla started in 2003, and got to you know, more than half of that, uh, 34 billion in 12 years. And you just look ahead right, at where that's going and you can kind of see the path that we're on. Um, I wanna close actually with a couple success stories I think will uh, provide a little context for the discussion after. I grew up uh, visiting my grandfather in the Adirondack Park. He lived in the Adirondacks in, in upstate New York, biggest state park in the country. And um, what was happening there is that uh, in the 70s, they had built to deal with a local air pollution problem in states like Ohio and elsewhere in the Midwest. They built higher smokestacks, got the pollution in the jet stream, comes down to the acid rain. There's 1,800 lakes in the Adirondacks where I learned to fish and swim. 25% of them died. Researchers were finding you know, loons that, that uh, you know, there was no fish, and, and, and they'd have to fly to other lakes to get fish, and then the chick wouldn't learn and would die. Then George Bush Sr., to his great credit, did uh, the acid rain bill, and what happened is uh, it worked, and actually would cut um, uh, acid rain emissions by almost 70%, and lakes that were dying in the Adirondacks are coming back to life. 
Okay? And the same thing happened with the ozone hole. 1987, the Montreal Protocol, we came together as a world community and to deal with the problem of chlorofluorocarbons, and we're now on a path to see the ozone hole completely restored by 2050. But the example that I think is most analogous for us now, dealing with the fossil fuel industry and where we're at, is what happened with smoking in America. Because remember, we gave cigarettes for free to every soldier in World War II. Uh, Johnny Carson used to smoke on The Tonight Show. Fred Flintstone smoked. Doctors did ad for cigarettes. President Kennedy smoked. Marilyn Monroe smoked. Sometimes they smoked together. (laughs) Okay. Then what happened? Then the truth came out, the science came out, hey, cigarettes cause cancer. Secondhand smoke causes cancer. And the response of the tobacco industry was what? They went from producing one product to two. They made cigarettes and doubt. They spent $100 million on junk science to distort that basic truth. What happened, it had the effect of delaying but not ultimately stopping the science from becoming accepted. And if you look what followed, it's really an inspiration. We basically had half of the country smoking. And once the science got accepted, this cascade of policies unfolded from banning cigarettes on being advertised on TV, the cigarette tax increasing, health warnings, banning on on smoking on airplanes, sales to minors, and so forth. And today, we've gone from almost half the country smoking to we're down to 15%, okay? One of the biggest public health success stories in our country's history. And I just want to leave you with that because with climate change, this is a solvable problem and we can follow the same path as these. Thank you so much. So this reports out on what we call Chapter 3 on technology. It has quite a long title. We'll just simplify it by saying technology going forward. And there's an outstanding team of authors who supported the preparation of this chapter and the summary that I'm able to provide to you uh, today. Uh, These are the technologies and the chapter sections uh, that are being addressed. Let me just start out with the introduction and build off of the note that uh, Commissioner Hochschild just made with respect to the solar and wind. You can see where it's evolving and emerging and being deployed rapidly. What David Austin and I decided to do was to focus not on solar and wind, but rather on the technologies that need to complement wind and solar and also succeed in driving down carbon, as well as the technologies that need to complement solar and wind in order to enable a higher penetration uh, into the uh, uh, energy system. For example, if we look at fossil and renewable power generation, uh, this is the uh, outline of the uh, load that is represented for California over 10 days. If you look at the top along the ridge, a thin black line, that's the demand and then that demand is fulfilled through the generation represented by the different uh, colors. Uh, Black is the load following uh, portion that helps to manage that dynamic. And then up here, you'll see the peakers, that little bit of red that come on to provide the remaining amount of electricity uh, that we need. Uh, This is particularly for an RPS of 14. If we go to uh, 20, you can see that it becomes a bit more magnified. As it goes to 33%, the dynamics become very challenging, including uh, the curtailment here of wind, uh, the additional peaker capacity, a greater load following capacity in the black, and then these high ramp rates in order to meet that variation in intermittent solar and wind. 
So recommendations coming out of this particular section would be to have this balance between our emphasis on greenhouse gases along with air quality, what we call the criteria pollutants. That message came through very loud and clear this morning, as well as with water. To replace these less efficient and higher polluting combustion power plants with state-of-the-art high efficiency zero criteria pollutant emission fuel cell power plants. To accelerate the development of hybrid gas turbine fuel cell technology to achieve fuel flexible ultra high efficiency zero criteria emission for both distributed and central generation and to accelerate the development of load following high ramp rate fuel cell systems and hybrid fuel cells. This is sounding just like a great engineering lecture, isn't it? <laughs> um, and then finally to accelerate the development of renewable fuels, biomethane, biohydrogen, renewable methane, renewable hydrogen, and the development of increasingly renewable natural gas resource. Again, that comes out of a message that you heard loud and clear this morning. If we look at transportation, that's right in lockstep with power generation in terms of contributing to greenhouse gases. On the left, you see the segment proportion for the state of California, and you'll see the transportation in the blue is a very substantial amount of the greenhouse gas emission. Over on the right, if we break down that transportation sector, you see the majority comes from light-duty vehicles. We now have the type of vehicles that are being deployed commercially to address this with zero carbon emission and also the zero emission of criteria pollutants. But on the heavy-duty vehicles, which represents a major amount as well or a major portion, we do not yet have the attention to that heavy-duty sector. If we turn right now to criteria pollutants, here are the oxides of nitrogen. And you see here that the light-duty vehicles are not as large as the heavy-duty vehicles. A moment ago, I said the light-duty vehicles were being addressed through zero carbon. Remember, that also is getting us to zero criteria pollutant emission. The same attention now is, must be given to heavy-duty uh, vehicles. Hence, the recommendations here are for light-duty vehicles to really accelerate that commercialization, that transition into this zero-carbon vehicle future battery electric vehicles, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And just last week, of course, Toyota released the first Mirai hydrogen fuel cell vehicle to a customer. Heavy duty vehicles, this is where there needs to be a substantial amount of attention. Accelerate the development and deployment of highly efficient fuel cell engines. This is for that heavy duty, heavy duty truck with zero criteria pollutant emission to alleviate the carbon and criteria pollutant uh, signature associated with the goods movement. On vehicle fuels to accelerate the evolution of viable and scalable storage technology, battery, hydrogen, the use of V2G, to facilitate the production and storage of renewable fuels from renewable solar and wind that would otherwise be curtailed. And this is really very interesting because of the convergence between transportation and the electric grid. Uh, the wording here is with the historically disparate electric power generation and transportation sectors, that means typically silos, <laughs> now moving toward a new integrated paradigm to proactively utilize the evolving system models, which are now becoming available, particularly through the University of California, to facilitate the path to meet this 
group of requirements, the reliability, the economy, the public acceptance, and the climate change and other environmental goals. We move to biomass fuels, and in this particular slide, we see the available resources in a particular country, uh, state, uh, California. Uh, up here is in the kind of maroon, uh, the gross resource that's available. In the blue would be that which we can extract on a sustainable manner and be able to replace every year. That turns out to be about 32 uh, short tons of material. The economically uh, available is a bit less than that. But what that translates into is about 4,600 megawatts of electric power or being able to fuel today three-quarters of the automobiles in California, about 200 million automobiles. The messages here would be to accelerate the availability of bioresources for power generation and transportation fuels. We just saw a nice example of a biomass electric power plant to accelerate the use of bioresources to produce products that are otherwise coming today from more conventional, non-renewable feedstocks such as petroleum, coal, and natural gas. And then third, to accelerate the use of bioresources to increase renewable content of natural gas and fuel both directly and indirectly the dispatchable power required to facilitate this high penetration of variable and intermittent solar and wind generation. This is really a key component for California, for the country, and for the world, is the identification of a clean power source that can provide the management and complement the intermittency and variability of solar and, and wind. Moving into nuclear power generation, we elected to include this because of its use throughout the world, its probable continuing use. And the messages here are that the United States in general and California in particular provide very strong expertise historically and today in this area, and that needs to be nurtured. Expertise not only in the waste of nuclear, but also in the development of next generation nuclear power plants, not necessarily for California, perhaps not even for the United States, but they are very popular elsewhere in the world. They're going to continue to be and the leadership of the University of California in this area has been very, very impressive. So first, in a recommendation is to maintain that expertise. Second, to develop the capacity to place spent fuel and high-level waste into deep geologic storage, regardless of whether nuclear energy expands or contracts. Third, to develop the competency in the next generation, the next generation of young people, associated with nuclear security to develop that sensitivity and responsibility for the challenge that we've already established and that we're going to have to be able to maintain. And then to continue to develop advanced nuclear technologies that address safety, economics, as well as waste. And battery technology. So here as you look at the boundary around that red mass in the middle, that boundary represents the goals for batteries to be fully commercial and fully useful in both transportation and in the electric grid. This particular diagram is for the electric vehicle developed by the U.S. Advanced Battery Coalition. And in the red is the current state for lithium ion. So it shows how successful lithium ion has been, but it also shows the extent to which we would like to evolve 
lithium ion or battery technology in general in order to fulfill the requirements that the future uh, demands. Uh, this chart uh, demonstrates again the evolution of lithium ion. On the left axis is cost, on the horizontal axis would be the energy density. This is where we are today with lithium ion. This is where we want to go. You can see many opportunities and challenges, but a lot of research. This will get us to the 200-mile EV. This is where we have to go to get to the 350-mile EV, if in fact we can get there. And just for reference, this is our grid storage target. This is one of the reasons that we speak about hydrogen energy storage is because of the challenge of getting battery electric storage down to these types of energy densities. But nonetheless, that's a stretch goal. Here, the recommendations are to focus on improving near-term technologies, and you can read through the three specific advances that are identified by the uh, author. To support research and development on grid-scale storage, that's getting to that, how far can we go with battery electric storage in order to provide the energy storage capability that we're going to need today and in the future on the grid. Support R&D for the next generation technologies like lithium metal, manganese ion, et cetera. And then to foster a formation of public-private partnerships to accelerate the innovations into the, uh, into the market. How about lighting? Well, the focus on lighting is on the LED, and here it is diagrammatically. We're getting more used to that. The public acceptance is rapidly growing. The price is coming down. This is a chart that's interesting just to show the advance in the performance, the efficacy of LEDs. Here is the efficacy. Here is the decades over which uh, that has competed or been challenged by incandescent and fluorescent. And you can see where we are today. We're there. It's a matter now of the uh, deployment. And one of the charts used to describe the effect of LED, 20% of our electricity today is taken up by lighting, would be this chart, which shows the number of nuclear power plants that will not have to be billed by 2020 if we successfully succeed in getting the deployment of LEDs into the market. Uh, this is a rational deployment of LEDs to about 50% in the market. Depends upon the country of how far that goes. And then these are the nuclear power plants. They've been weighted to the average size in each of the countries. For the U.S., it's just under 1,000 megawatts. Utilization factor about 91%. But this could just as well be coal-fired power plants. What it is saying is either nuclear power does not have to be provided or, more importantly, to the climate change challenge is coal-fired natural gas fossil fuel uh, power plants. Very inviting graph with respect to the potential of LED, and that train's already left the station. Here, to accelerate the replacement of all incandescent metal halide and fluorescent fixtures, and then to work through research and development of a 200, of a 200 lumen per watt intelligent LED system, more and more smarts. 
optimized for color and brightness. Very interesting. In order to improve work and school productivity. This is really getting cool and building efficiency. Geothermal heat pumps, kind of lost in the background on the back burner. Uh, these are uh, engineering devices to convey energy into and out of the Earth's crust. It depends upon, their effectiveness depends upon the climate zone. Uh, what you see here are the different climate zones for California, and then those green dots represent the campuses of the University of California, just to show you that depending upon the campus, a geothermal heat pump might be more effective than another. This is really to replace conventional heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems with a much more efficient and much lower carbon-intense uh, strategy. On this particular plot, it's interesting in that it shows along the horizontal axis the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the geothermal heat pump and along the vertical axis, the greenhouse gases associated with today's heating um, and uh, air conditioning ventilation. This 45 degree line represents you know, zero emission reduction if you were to transform from conventional HVAC to a geothermal uh, heat pump. 20% uh, reduction here, 50% reduction here, 80%, and this just shows the communities around the state and where they would benefit, or in one case, it would be a wash relative to the transformation to this particular technology. If adopted by the University of California, the average would be over a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas, as an example. Recommendations, accounting for climate zones, deploy geothermal heat pump systems to provide energy savings and emissions. Increase the benefits by coupling geothermal heat pumps with other renewable resources into integrated or hybrid systems for even greater returns, taking advantage of synergisms that are available in that space. And then third gets to our chapter on communications. We'll be getting to that. Fascinating chapter in the report that ROM has put together of conveying information, in this case to the local agencies, in order to be more receptive to this particular uh, technology. Smart grid technology, 3.9. So here's the vision of the grid of the future. You can see uh, power plants. You can see green automobiles, some of them battery electric vehicles, some of them hydrogen electric vehicles. You can see batteries, batteries here. Solar, of course. You can also see uh, microgrid. Some of you were able to visit this afternoon. And nanogrids, which is basically the grid within a building such as this. And it just gives you the feeling that that is while very exciting and a vision of the zero carbon future, it's very challenging to control, particularly with the intermittency of the solar and wind resources that are at the heart of that system. So what smart grid technology is, is to bring that sort of control 
so that people like up here, which is the system operator, has the ability to manage that system, such as the utility, as shown here, has the ability to manage the distribution portion of that system, so that the plug-in electric vehicles, which are likely going to become an integral part of both the load and the availability of energy to the grid is going to have to be controlled. And then, of course, to you and me and the operator and manager of the industry or of the office building, but you and me in our homes, to the customer of being able to give us options of what economic profile we want to be able to follow and have that be followed unless we want to manually override that. So this is pretty well a description of the smart grid in terms of what it constitutes, an intelligent grid with communication, et cetera. The goals of the smart grid, these are the ones that have driven its evolution, but this is particular one is the one that's germane to our discussion today to meet the challenging environmental goals associated with climate change, air quality, and water utilization. Here, the recommendations are to conduct the systems level grid modeling that we alluded to earlier, but in this case, to identify, quantify, and develop the scenarios needed to resolve the challenges that the smart grid technology is positioned to address with respect to controlling these real-time dynamics associated with intermittent solar and wind. Magnificent technology, but we have to manage it. And here, this is huge, a lot of words. Managing generation resources in combination with storage, electricity markets, ancillary services associated with distributed energy resources and microgrids, battery and fuel cell electric vehicles, and the goods movement. Uh, it's something that's evolving, but it needs this backbone of research and support. You can see the types of technologies while they're available today. They need to be substantially increased in their capability to support this future. And then this particular bullet is associated with the complementary robust electricity markets that are going to be needed and are being considered today in support of this smart future. Well, once again, thank you all for uh, hosting this and for the incredible work that Ram and everyone else has done. You really did keep the, keep the team moving. And as one of the, uh, uh, the, the deputy directors, it's been a real pleasure to look at a lot of the results and to talk with the teams. And I think you'll see a lot of the lessons that we've been learning from the other teams um, um, in, in this chapter going forward. And so we have, once again, a really exceptional group, but also with a very large group of people we want to acknowledge who provided input and weren't directly in the author group. And they come from not only the UC system, the national laboratories, and a number of the business, Silicon Valley business group and others, uh, LBL and Livermore, all, all in the team. So it's really been a pleasure to do this. And chapter four is really the ultimate cherry picking. It is what are the great lessons, not about individual technologies, 
practices on the economic or behavioral side, but what does it take to scale things up? And that's really where California as a system, not just the university, not just the labs, not just the business community, is really this exciting laboratory, and that's really why we're all here. And so if there really was one high-level uh, conclusion, it's that um, very different than the 1960s where the system was the problem. The system is really the solution. And what we find over and over again in looking at different cases is that it's you need a dose, or maybe a big dose, of research and development. You need a big dose of deployment. You need a big dose of understanding the markets. But it's really putting all of these things together and linking together what the government does in terms of setting that agenda, what the university system does, what the labs do, and what very creative, uh, forward-thinking businesses do. That's really the critical picture. And again and again, when we see that full ecosystem then we do see solutions that scale across the state and scale beyond. And the cases that crash and burn are ones where we don't get that healthy interaction of all of the units. And so this is an iconic picture in the solar field. And um, we heard from Scott, not looking just at solar, but this is the evolution of different solar technologies. And it's meant to be a blinding blur of different technologies on their own individual innovation paths. This is their efficiency over time. Lots of different actors, many from the UC system. That R&D investment's critical. But then was what we heard before. Um, uh, we, we heard it um, from Dave, uh, from the Energy Commission. We heard it from people in this, uh, earlier in the morning talking about this learning curve, this learning by doing process where we consistently see for technologies that we can mass produce, and there are some interesting cases where we don't mass produce, that we often see this 20% decline in prices for every doubling of production. And that is an observation, not a basic law of economics. Uh, Max will be able to correct anyone who says it's a, it's a fixed rule, but it highlights this path that's brought solar as just one example, way down in price to the numbers that you heard, four cents a kilowatt hour for some systems when it was over 50 recently. That's part one and part two of a process that we see and chapter four highlights across many cases. And then there's deployment. And so California's million solar roofs is one large scale example. Uh, we'll talk tomorrow about some quite ambitious goals to think about targets beyond that now that California is halfway to that million solar roof goal by 2020. We think the numbers could be actually bumped up quite a bit. But off-grid, developing country, energy services for the poor is another whole market. And the lighting products you see off-grid in the bottom were actually the highlight of an event at the White House on Thursday, highlighting the many, many companies, both uh, California, U.S., and, broad and more broadly, globally-based, bringing initially glorified lighting systems with cell phone charging and now um, very efficient refrigerators and TVs building up a very large ecosystem of technologies. It's when you get all of these pieces together where we find these successes. And when you break down, that's really the, the warning for the group. If you don't get all of that together, you really don't get it. Examples of thinking holistically, interdisciplinary about um, these different issues come in many forms. There was a very important uh, workshop that took place at Irvine uh, earlier this year. Um, and see, so we have some authors on the, on the project that were the chairs of it. But the lessons were very, very similar. <clears throat> to think about the water energy nexus, the carbon embodied in water based on, on, its, on, its, on its movement, um, that we need to think about institutional arrangements so we can gather the data across very different modalities, finding ways to develop metrics that look at energy 
used to move water, water required for energy, impacts on ecosystems, fish, community groups. There's a whole variety of things where we need to consistently be looking out of the comfort zone of individual small groups, whether it's an individual researcher or teams that think kind of similarly. And so finding ways to build those enabling ecosystems so that the the system really can be the solution is a critical part of the story. As we think more broadly about it, here's an example tool. And there's a number of groups in the state at both research groups that are not at universities like E3, to university groups at Davis, at UCLA, at Berkeley. And I'll just highlight one example from Berkeley where an energy system modeling tool is utilized to think about how to provide highly robust, uh, reliable energy that meets our environmental and economic cost goals. And this is a project that started off with state support, for California, expanded to the WEC, the western part of North America, and now there are versions of this particular modeling tool available for all the countries you see here. Chile, Nicaragua, working on Mexico, um, China was recently released, East Africa, the data is being gathered in parts of now, Southeast Europe. And the lesson is very interesting. These are all different scenarios with different mixes of technologies with nu- nuclear and purple, biofuels, um, as you just heard in the previous talk uh, here in green. Um, coal in brown, we have hydropower in blue, gray is gas, and then red geothermal, yellow solar, um, and light blue wind. All of these cases meet that two-degree goal by 2050. But the challenge is, you see, if we're not efficient, we're going to need more energy, no surprise. But all of these cases get there. So while technology enables a whole bunch of paths consistent with California's goals, there are critical branch points and there are social decisions that the hardware options don't answer. And that's that broader ecosystem of actors. Which ones are better in terms of ecological impacts, in terms of enabling communities, large and small, to generate the energy they need? And if we jump from this picture of the least cost scenarios in 2020 to those in 2050, we see scenarios such as my own personal favorites, um, the ones where we have greatly decreased solar costs, but also greatly decreased uh, storage costs, things that many people are working on in the system, and our regulators are setting mandates to get storage in the system. We also have cases where if nuclear meets some of the price numbers that have been talked about of carbon capture, all of these meet those targets. But this is not a process that's going to be solved by technology. It'll be enabled by technology, but only solved by us thinking about what are our goals. The, car- the carbon goals, the water goals, the job creation and environmental justice goals. Just to kind of highlight the many other cases where this comes up and to point out some of our current failings, we have important issues, as I've just highlighted, for energy. The water case as well, where we need metrics that stretch across not only energy and water, grams of carbon emitted per amount of energy or amount of water delivered, but also effects on biodiversity and communities. We have similar stories in transportation, where the low-carbon fuel standard we mentioned before is a great example of building a framework around metrics, even when those metrics are hard to use. An amazing thing California did, quite different than the European roundtable on sustainable biofuels, is when we came to the really challenging issue of what are the indirect land use impacts of biofuels, California didn't run. This uh, European uh, Commission essentially defined that outside their purview, whereas we took it directly on board. California at the Air Resources Board and now at the US EPA are grappling with the really hard question of what is the indirect land use impact of biofuels? And you've got to do that heavy lifting to get there. And that's 
again, enabled by California legislation, supported by the research community to really make that story happen. Environmental justice is an area where many groups are focused, but arguably we could use some strong goals. And I do know, because I wrote it, that a question that will be asked tomorrow of Senator Pavley will be, what are some of the features in SB 32 that we didn't have in AB 32 that we would need to really make it a socially and um, demographically equitable program, something that we could definitely improve upon from our first effort. And again, this amazing article from the New York Times that many of you have read and are teaching from that kind of show the excesses of uh, home design and community design that don't follow these practices. That is a, a recipe and what not to do, and it's one that took place in our backyard. So we are far from perfect on this, as we all know. To highlight Moving the tools further, many of you we talked about this morning, and, and um, President Napolitano, my own Chancellor Dirks, have all highlighted their role in the uh, Cool Campus Challenge. That started out as an Air Resources Board project supported by groups like Next10 and others, and it's an effort where we are looking back and forth at how can consumers, from businesses to individuals, really get a handle on what are their carbon footprints, so we have an interactive calculator, and when you go to the site, what everyone does first is, of course, put their own zip code in. You can roll your mouse over it, and you can see what the carbon footprint is, averaged over your zip code, and then do your own footprint and see, are you better or worse than the Joneses? And that's what everyone does first. Great lesson of behavioral economics. You really, we're not so good at absolutes, but we're quite good at knowing are we better or not than our neighbor. So we need to utilize those types of tools to move along the process. And so... In terms of the data that's come out of this, this is carbon dioxide emissions from households by zip code. And again, that's the map that you can roll over and see not only the fraction of energy um, that comes from fossil fuel sources, but also the amount that you get um, kilowatt hours a year, natural gas, fuel oil, the housing budget, and then transportation, goods and services. And when you zero in on cities, something that you see that's kind of remarkable is Look in in detail, and many of our cities that have won huge awards for being green are cities that have solved the problem or have taken advantage of what's going on in the urban center, but have not dealt with the suburbs. And so thinking more holistically is critical to that process overall. And so as we think through these kinds of issues, we can utilize these tools, and all the campuses are engaged in this challenge. We're giving out awards to cities that are taking advantage of these processes. And this is really a way to bring what we're all working on on the research and governance side as an opportunity to work community by community and challenge ourselves to do better. And uh, Doug Rotman will highlight more of how the campuses are moving this along. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. And uh, as we think about scaling, what we're thinking about is how to scale up our influence and scale up those deployments out to larger and larger areas. And uh, critical to that are going to be partnerships, as we discussed before. Partnerships include those between campuses and between campuses and labs. Secondly, we see very, very strong partnerships between the UC and state entities and federal entities. And finally, the all-important aspects of making sure uh, the industrial partnerships are there, because they will be the ones key to making those deployments happen. But... <clears throat> 
In the UC area, we have really, really lucky in that we have golden nuggets of innovation already ongoing at these campuses. And I have just highlighted a few here. They're, each campus has their own, but just to, to bring out a, a, a couple. Right here, how many went to the San Diego uh, microgrid tour? It was really, really fantastic. We spent some time out there. We saw that within campus, they are already generating 82%, 85% of all their demand on campus here. Really fantastic. And they have now linked that with a very strong and large test bed of energy storage devices. Very, very excellent. Right next to all of their smart grid area. And that, I think, is going to be a test bed and for people to come try out new ideas and bring this thing to larger and larger scales. They've combined those two right next to each other, and they are now becoming a real avenue of expertise and how do you combine production with storage to offset that demand, re increase the, the efficiency, as Scott mentioned, like that. That's really, really powerful. And what you're now you're seeing is because of that kind of capability at these campuses, manufacturing locations are bringing their jobs and bringing their skills near these campuses. There's a solar manufacturing site nearby creating jobs. It's that sort of research, that sort of test bed, and that sort of manufacturing ecosystems that can really help branch out these solutions across a larger and larger scale. Again, how many people have gone to UC Davis West Village? Really great, great place. If you have never been there, please do visit. They have 2,000 people on staff, on site. They're living. This is a real living laboratory now. They are producing 4.1 megawatts, 82% of all their energy use is by renewable means on site at that uh, West Village. Really, really important uh, showcase here for how it, deep energy efficiency can really play a deep role. They made a big study in their West Village of just how much can you drive down this efficiency area. And they were able to, in a, in a place where people are living all the time, they have found ways to achieve 50% more efficiency out of living these areas than the, than the California code now ha handles in its own. So this is a showcase of how you can do this in a living laboratory, people living there, all the lessons learned. They're now expanding that out into anaerobic digesters for waste and fuel from that, uh, smart lighting and EV car charging, many, many different aspects. They're bringing this out to a larger scale. And to the point that now folks from around the state, around the nation, around the world are coming to Davis uh, to analyze what they're doing. How, can they, we learn from that experience and bring that out to the rest of the world? Finally, in, in L.A., as many of you know, I forget the exact number, but a very large percent of all the energy used in the United States and the world are in urban settings or me megacities. They are really the crux of where you can establish huge energy savings and sustainability avenues. And UCLA has taken on a huge task. Uh, they are now partnered with, UC with L.A., and they have three goals in this partnership. One, they want all 100% of energy used and transportation used in the city of LA to come from renewable and from renewable resources. That's all of the energy used and all the transportation used in LA. That's a very, very large task. Next, they want all of their water used to come from LA sources. 100% of water come from LA sources. And finally, you want to do this all within context of a very sustainable, rich, wonderful ecosystem of, of plant life and biodiversity. That is a very, very large task. 
And uh, they have over 150 faculty now working on this, doing great work. The next thing is a five-year plan out coming out soon and the full deployment out into, by 2050. But that's, those are three examples of the rich innovation that's going on at these labs that we can scale up to larger and larger regions. We heard this morning about the great work from UCOP in working with industry to bring 80 megawatts of solar online in the state. That's a great example of how the UC leadership can drive this forward in a larger and scale-up way. And UC Merced is one of those recipients of that, and they are now uh, a cheat. They are now ramping up their uh, renewable on-site plus this UC resource in the Central Valley, they will may likely become the first UC campus to be carbon neutral well before 2025. It's an example of on-site renewable, purchased renewable, and biofuel uh, or renewable fuel cells. So this is really example. Those again are expanding our scales out to the state and out to the nation. So we've talked a little bit about these partnerships, and these partnerships are really, really critical, as we, as we said many times, campus, campus, campus lab, and then campus industry. All these things are very important. For those are the ones that are gonna really drive innovative science and research at these campuses, building the next generation of, of uh, energy e ecosystem people and building the next scale of, of, of um, sustainable solutions. We also really think these intersectoral partnerships are going to be really important. Can the federal and the state governments get together with the UC to drive these solutions on a really large scale across the nation? I'll jump down. Maybe this could be done by achieving uniform goals. Put out some really large stretch goals of renewable energy generation cost of any type. We don't need to be prospective here. How about uh, energy technology performance goals? Or how about technology performance goals or any of these things that's going to be put out these large goals and let these teams of campuses and labs and industry and federal and state governments form these consortiums to achieve those big, big goals. We think about the DOE Sunshot example where they put out a bogey of a price and that now then coalesced enormous amounts of people and in industry and universities working together. And uh, again, I want to stress over and over again the importance of these industrial partnerships. They are the ones who can help us deploy those, those, those themes out on campus or elsewhere. Working in these partnerships, working with industry, and putting forth these large-scale, large, big task-driven goals, we think we can achieve these kind of scale-ups on the, on the state and the national and the, and the global side. This should be probably the largest scale up that one can imagine. If we can actually engage from the United States, UC, into the California, all the way out to the UC bilateral in China, that would be a monumental achievement for the state. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.